My big start's kind of fallen flat there, hasn't it? <laughs> Forget everything I just said. <clears throat> Sir, <laughs> we could buy their whole company for what we make in three days. The CEO thought about this proposition and said, nah, why would people want to order movies from the internet when they can come into our stores and browse all of our movies right there. And so it was that Blockbuster Video decided not to purchase Netflix in 1997. Ten years later, that little company called Netflix that they could have bought so cheaply made its first billion dollars in one year. And just three years after that, Blockbuster Video filed for bankruptcy, no doubt still cursing their bad decision those years before. Now, of course, hindsight is 2020, and there's no way we could know how that road not traveled would have panned out had they made the purchase. But the reason I'm starting with a story from business is because I want to illustrate just how valuable is this commodity that we call wisdom. But, as the former CEO of Blockbuster would probably tell you, wisdom can be hard to identify. We as a society can't even fully agree on what the word means. So you ask anyone out there, uh, and wisdom will seem to be this uh, product of a mysterious cocktail of experience, knowledge, perception, reason, intuition, and maybe even a few celebrity Instagram posts. Maybe wisdom is just, just how to be good at life. Now, here's the thing. To, to the rest of the world, wisdom is, is measured retrospectively. You, you only find out if you were wise afterwards, if you won, if you were successful. Did this person do well or didn't they? And that's how we know if they were wise or if they weren't. But, as Blockbuster Video showed us, it's often impossible to know if you're doing well until it's too late. Before you get too depressed, however, you'll be very glad to know that the Bible gives us a completely different perspective on wisdom. So as we get into this sermon series, though, we're going to have a bit of an overview of Proverbs to kick off. So you might know that the Bible is made up of different types and styles of writing. You've got law, you've got history, you've got prophecy, you've got poetry, and so on. And then we have three quite small books embedded right here in the Old Testament, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, that are called wisdom literature. Now, that's not unique to those three books. In fact, at the time that the Hebrew Bible was being written, wisdom literature was quite a common thing. Lots of civilizations had their own versions of wisdom literature, but we don't really have a good equivalent of it today. And because of that, to our modern minds, these three books can feel like some of the most confusing to read and to try to understand in the whole canon of Scripture because of, of, of how they're presented to us. So before we go too deep in our elusive hunt for wisdom, let's take a little time to understand how to read Proverbs well. We don't know exactly when Proverbs was written down. 
Much of it is attributed to King Solomon, who was the son of David, famously the wisest person ever to live. Um, but other parts of it are voiced by a character called Agur, uh, and there's also wisdom from a non-Israelite king called Lemuel, or in fact the wisdom is from Lemuel's mum, and then there's some other more general collections of wisdom worked in there too. So Proverbs is an anthology of wisdom built over a number of generations of people following God. There's a lot of very well-meaning misconceptions in the church today about what Proverbs is for. And and those misconceptions can be uh, a reason why we can find it so tricky to get our heads around Proverbs. So, So let's take a look at what Proverbs is, and maybe importantly, what Proverbs isn't. As I take a sip of water. Proverbs is not the law. So, so God's law to us, such as we might find in books like Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Exodus, is direct from God. It's non-negotiable. It doesn't change with time, and the Bible tells us that going against the law is sin. If you go against a proverb, if you don't follow the advice of a proverb, that doesn't necessarily make you sinful. Although, as we'll find out as we study the book, it might mean you're a fool, Uh, However, to quote Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men, one of my favorite uh, fictional lawyers, sir, my client may be a moron, but that's not against the law. (laughs) Proverbs isn't law. Proverbs isn't prophecy. So prophecy in books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, many others, is God's word direct to a specific group of people in a specific place for a specific time, instructing them how to act. Yes, yes, of course, there's plenty we can learn from it, but it is for those people in that time. And if God speaks, the people probably want to do what he's telling them to do. Proverbs, on the other hand, is deliberately non-specific. More on that later. So it's not the law and it's not prophecy. Proverbs is the thoughts of human beings. Now, yes, of course, we do believe that all scripture is inspired and ordained by God. So his voice is absolutely present in Proverbs. But Proverbs is explicitly the product of the experiences of people, how they are working out how to do life. So, so they had the, the law and the prophets in one hand and, and trying to do their best to follow God in these. But in the other hand, life was going on. So they had conflict and romance and adolescence and politics and business. And now I've got a mic in my hand. I can't do the two-hand illustration that I was planning to do here. But Proverbs is these people's best learnings for how to live out these things well whilst also having these things going on. So here's a tough one. Proverbs isn't promises. Now, this one's really hard to hear because we love a guarantee, don't we? Vote for our party and we guarantee to fix this social problem. Go to university, you're guaranteed to get a better job straight afterwards. Follow this diet and you're guaranteed to lose 10 kilos in the first week. Now, the the Bible is absolutely full of God's promises. I believe there's over 7,000, somebody once counted, 
And because proverbs are presented with this formula of cause and effect, it can be really easy to read them and think that they are a promise of how life will go if you do the thing that they're suggesting that you do. But that's not what they are. Proverbs is probabilities. It's the most likely outcome. Not what will definitely happen, what will probably happen if you do what it suggests. No guarantees available, unfortunately. Why not? Because real life is too complicated and messy to be able to predict with something like a proverb. Let me give you an example, okay? Here's a modern proverb that I've written. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do it in a very proverbs way. It's okay, ready? <clears throat> My son. Sorry, Solomon, it's 2023. My child. <clears throat> in order to be safe on the roads, obey the highway code and drive carefully. Seems wise, right? Um, what I've said is probably true. On the balance of possibilities... That, that's the way to be safe on the roads. It's certainly the best general advice I can give a large group of people based on what you are in control of. But none of you would have to get particularly creative to add a whole load of excepts on the end of that proverb I've just given you. Except if other people around you drive dangerously. Except if the weather's really, really bad. Except if something breaks on the car that keeps you safe. Except, except, except. Now, that doesn't make my proverb less wise. It doesn't make it less true. It doesn't even make it less literal. But what we need to understand is that Proverbs is only offering us the most simple picture in terms of how life might play out. You can always put an accept on the end of a proverb. And before we might worry that that means that God doesn't understand what, what life is like or the Bible might be irrelevant to us, please understand that that simplicity is on purpose. It's not a flaw in the book of Proverbs. And the reason is, is because Proverbs only ever claims to be the beginning of the path to wisdom. Only the beginning and by the way, if, if, if you want to read a lot of the accepts, how to pursue wisdom when life gets too messy for the simplicity that Proverbs offers us, that's precisely what the books of Ecclesiastes and Job contain. They are a lot heavier. If you've read them recently, you'll remember they can, they can feel really, really bleak. And that's because they're dealing with how to continue on this wisdom road when life gets really, really messy. Proverbs, though is the beginning of the journey to wisdom. And there's one more thing we need to know about Proverbs in order to read it well. And to do so, I need to introduce you to two ladies. So the bits of Proverbs that you're probably the most familiar with, what I've been talking about mostly, these are hundreds and hundreds of single verse formulas with a lesson about what to do or what not to do in order to live well under God. Those bits of Proverbs are found in chapters 10 to 29 of the book. But chapters 1 to 9, from where our scripture comes today, function in a different way. They are deeper. They are a narrative introduction to the concept of wisdom. These chapters are not proverbs, they're poetry. Just like the Psalms, 
In fact, if you read Proverbs 1 to 9 and then read certain Psalms, you'll find there's huge amounts of overlap with terminology used, with images used. If you try and read Proverbs 1 to 9 as as a scholar, as a literalist, as a historian, as a theologian even, um, you might find it really difficult. But if you try and read it as an artist, as a poet, then you'll probably find it a lot easier. Because as all good poems do, Proverbs 1 to 9 uses symbolism and analogy in order to excite our imaginations and communicate some of the deep truths of the universe to our hearts. So, in these nine poetic chapters, you have a father, Solomon, educating his son about wisdom. But as he teaches his son, two other voices come and join the conversation. And these two voices are Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, or Lady Foolishness. So how can Solomon help his probably teenage son get to grips with these complicated, abstract concepts? Well, he describes them as characters. It's a literary technique that is is used in all generations. Wuthering Heights, 1984, Moby Dick. We take this really complicated feeling or abstract concept and we put it into a character so that our human minds can get around it. And then here's what's really smart of Solomon. He's educating his teenage son and wants to grab his attention and keep his attention. So what kind of character does he choose? Two beautiful women. Very clever, Solomon. Well done. So Lady Folly attempts to tempt this son away from wise living. She encourages laziness, selfishness, theft, sexual immorality, all under the pretense of comfortable and easy living. She is described as physically beautiful. But chapter 9 ends its description of Lady Folly and her followers with these chilling words. Little do they know that her guests are already deep in the realm of the dead. Lady Wisdom is different. Sometimes the father narrator describes her as we we saw in chapter 3. Sometimes she speaks for herself. So chapter 8 is a whole speech directly from her. Lady Wisdom is bold. She's outspoken. She's knowledgeable. She's hardworking. She's kind. Listen listen to this uh, this from uh, our passage today. Starting at verse 15. She, Lady Wisdom, is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways. And all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to all who follow her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. As we read more, we we start to hear about Lady Wisdom's intimacy with the Lord. We discover that she was there when God created everything around us. In, In fact, let me rephrase that. She wasn't just there. God used her to create everything around us. Proverbs tells us that the whole created order is built on a firm bedrock of wisdom. 
here's what I really, really love. Unlike Lady Folly, Lady Wisdom's physical attractiveness is never mentioned in Proverbs 1 to 9, but the reader comes away in no doubt whatsoever that Lady Wisdom is utterly, utterly beautiful. As you read more and more through these chapters, you keep on hearing more from Lady Wisdom and your emotions start to be stirred and your heart begins to cry out to hear more from this incredible, wise woman. I wonder if you've ever read the Gospels. And um, sometimes I do this and it just catches me completely unawares. I'm just reading a, a parable or something that Jesus said or did. And suddenly my heart just sings out, just saying, I want to know more about this incredible man. I want to carry on reading even though I've finished my Bible study for the day. I just, my heart just wakes up and I want to pursue this incredible, beautiful Jesus. Well, Lady Wisdom is like that in chapters 1 to 9 here. So that's the effect that she has. And I want to encourage you to try it for yourselves. We're all um, going out to do what we're doing for summer. Some of you are getting on a plane to Uganda tomorrow. Others of you are doing various different things. We've all got some time in our near future. So I want to encourage you, sit down. Read or listen to the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Let your mind relax. Let your imagination follow where the words try to lead you and let yourself begin to feel the longing to pursue this incredible woman being described. Now this, this beauty, this, this deep soul awakening love isn't a, a happy mistake that the writer didn't just happen to get lucky with some pretty words that they chose well because Proverbs is, is built, building this uh, meta analogy and that is that the pursuit of wisdom is a romance story it's like falling in love the reason a romance is such a useful way to think about the beginning of this journey pursuing wisdom romance is an investment of your time romance is a deliberate choice to pursue this person at the expense of other options romance requires commitment it requires investment in the other person and even though it often might start with fireworks true romance is a gradual journey towards the other person and wisdom is the same i'm afraid that you can't just decide to be wise overnight wisdom like romance, is an investment of your time. It's a deliberate choice to pursue wisdom, often at the expense of other easier options. Commitment, investment to learning, personal growth is a mark of wisdom, and wisdom is a gradual growth towards each other. So as we come towards a conclusion, there are three things I want to pull out that I think will help uh, set us on the right footing as we enter this sermon series, Looking for Wisdom. Number one, wisdom acknowledges that life offers few guarantees. We can't predict what's going to happen in life. We can't be in control of everything that will happen. But we can commit to making small, daily, wise choices, such as the Proverbs encourage, that will, A, hopefully steer us in directions of success, 
but B, give us resilience and preparedness if things don't go to plan. Number two, wisdom is a romance, taking your time and your commitment. Fall in love with God's beautiful wisdom. Go after it. Make choices every day that prioritize wisdom over easiness. Go and read Proverbs 1 to 9 for yourself this week and ask God to open up your heart to the romance of wisdom. And number three, I actually need to apologize here. I told you that there aren't any promises or guarantees in Proverbs. Um, However, actually, there is one whopping great one uh, from our scripture today. Could we have it on screen, please, Phoebe? Um, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will direct your paths. And there it is. That's all you need to know, those two verses. I recently taught uh, one of my seven-year-old daughters about code breaking. She loves a puzzle, so we, so we learned how to, how to write and break a code. Uh, and so she and I now spend lots of time writing coded message, messages to each other. To anyone else, they, our messages look like complete gibberish, totally confusing, uh, maybe like the book of Proverbs might feel to some of us. They're just a collection and scramble of letters and numbers on the page. Um, but, but my daughter and I have the key. So we've, we've got a little, a little uh, we, uh, cardboard that we fold in our pockets that says how to break the code, what the key to the code is. And I often think of these verses as the key to the code. Because if you start off with these 28 little words, the rest of Proverbs, the rest of the Old and New Testaments, and actually I think the rest of life will start to slot into place and make a lot more sense. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will direct your paths. Position yourself so that every choice you make is rooted in a belief that God is good. God is in control. God will guide you. And if you do that, you'll discover that you've become wise. Amen.